Welcome to the end of the Millennium Mindfuck era of Total Reboot. We are wrapping up what I might say is maybe my favorite miniseries ever covered on the podcast, Cameron. Hands down. This has been so much fun. It's tapped into all of those core reasons that we became cinephiles. Mm -hmm. All of those teenage feelings, all of that bubbling questioning of... The silver screen and the celluloid and digital yes. versatile discs. We, lo- I loved it. I've had so much fun rewatching these. Films. I'm right there with you. I think it's been all about that rediscovery. So mm. on today's episode, we really want to just kind of go through the Millennium Mindfuck era because I would kind of say this is one of our most like. Uh, mini series where we had a mission in mind, where yeah. we wanted to kind of discover something, we want to kind of define something, and connect this group of films together because I think still while these films are all kind of gateway movies for us and for a lot of the listeners of this podcast there hasn't been really much writing on these on these movies as a group at a certain time yeah that's true it's like we all we all know that they're lumped together but no one has really found a way to uh to tie them together in essay form so what I think we're saying is could every Film student out there, <laughs> write your write an essay about about the Millennium Mindfuck movies, please. Yes, please, 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 and please put an asterisk where the U in the F U C K is, yeah, because otherwise you might get freaking tossed out of uni. That's true. And if you could source us in your essay, mm. that's one of my main goals is that we get referenced in essays across the country, and dare I say it, the world. It does happen from time to time. And when people send it to me, I'm like, honey, you've made my day. It's so funny when it happens. I love it. I feel like (laughs) such a fraud. (laughs) Yeah. Because you guys know I'm just making this shit up, right? Like, I'm not always using sources. It's just from my own brain. We don't know what the fuck we're talking about. (laughs) (laughs) So I think we wanted to, like, with this episode, go through it all, kind of Mm. talk about the things that we discovered or rediscovered or reawoken with mm-hmm, our mm-hmm. Millennium Mindfuck miniseries, the films that we went through, the directors that we talked about, the auteurs that we authored, and kind of go through the things that we didn't get a chance to talk about, the things that we missed, and answer some questions along the way. And then at the very end of the episode, we're going to announce what our next miniseries is. Mm-hmm. It has been freaking decided. Yeah. We have picked a something from a list that we've been brewing for a couple of years and I'm man I'm so excited to get into it <laughs> me too me too but you know what when we started this mini series we had uh we had a bit of a a question in mind which was how do you define this genre cycle this era of filmmaking and I actually think that uh Alexi, you had a pretty astute way of summing this up. Yeah, it kind of felt like a bit of a eureka moment, Cam. Mm. And it happened to me when we were watching Requiem for a Dream because it that one kind of stands out as something a little bit... I think because it's closer to reality than fiction mm. compared to a lot of the other speculative works. Mm. But it still felt so in tone with what we were talking about. And I think one of the key things for me was that all the films we discussed and all the films that we even considered for this miniseries were auteured films Mm. by filmmakers with a definitive voice and a defined voice that were trying to impart some kind of message, whether it be philosophical, psychological, emotional, intimate, or speculative about like the now either the now or the very near future with what was happening. They all feel kind of relevant to the dawn of the 21st century when we're either leading into it or just going through it and trying to think back about what what was going on in that change in culture, that change in history. Because it does feel like a definitive change. Like There mm. does feel like a change from the Millennium Mindfuck movies from just before leading up to the ones that come a little bit further down the line. But I also think it's like a defined decade. I Mm. think it kind of begins... We did films earlier than this, but I think really Dark City does feel like the first one at 98 Mm. where I just go, that's a Millennium Mindfuck movie. Mm. Like, that's philosophy meets 
innovation with like form and structure and look. I think mm-hmm. innovation and imagination is really key to it as well. Mm-hmm. But then also it's got this personal perspective from an auteur kind of going through the philosophy and the philosophical nature of existence. And then I think that it kind of ends around the time of a scanner darkly. I think that mm. there's a real definitive shift from around 2008, 2009, where we still get movies that are mind fucky, but I think <laughs> mind fucky <laughs> so style if could, movies. If you could reference that in an essay, that would be nice. There's still mind fucky style movies (laughs) towards the end of that decade, but I think they either kind of shift to be a little bit more, how do I say it, like kind of sleeker Mm. or uh, more genre blockbustery or even rawer in a kind of way. Mm. Like there are a couple Mm -hmm. of movies we'll talk about later on when we talk about the kind of children of the Millennium Mindfuck, like the filmmakers that continue that tradition afterwards. But I feel like there's that defined era there. And I think the key for me is that they are all artistically daring and innovative in either their form, structure, style, and presentation. Mm -hmm. And seeing Requiem for a Dream, which could have been done as a fucking hard neorealist movie. And there's so Mm -hmm. so many Mm -hmm. drug movies that are like, fully in that kind of docu-style cinema verite, very Mm -hmm. realistic, neorealistic films. To see it be a plot of so much like fucking straight up celluloid surrealism and editing surrealism that Mm. I have not seen in anything outside of music videos, really. I was like, I think that is so key that it has to be innovative in its form in some way as well. Yeah, I'm 100% with you on that. I think that's such a great way to describe this whole genre cycle. I'd like to add that I think all of the films that we discussed over the last little period here, they're all they're all about questioning reality and questioning mm. the truth that we are presented with in our day-to-day lives. And I think that this appeals to teenagers because yep. that's exactly what we're doing at that age, mm. you know, when we're 13, yes. 14, 15 we are pushing parental boundaries. We're questioning why we have rules, mm-hmm. why we have to do homework, yep. you know, why we have to go to school. It's all about questioning and pushing your perceived realities. Literally, I think the whole thing uh, can be summed up in, a, in that moment in The Matrix, which we didn't discuss, but is a very important movie and for this cycle. Um, it's the key movie, it's I'd the say. key movie. And that, that quote is, there is no spoon. I think that is the... At the core of the Millennium Mindfucked is looking at reality and deciding that it's not there. I've got a quote I want to throw at you, Alexi. Uh You might not be familiar with this quote. This quote is, We fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. What is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. That quote is from 2 Corinthians, which is from the Bible. Wow. And the reason I wanted to bring it up is because I believe after watching all of these now that we have just watched an entire genre cycle of faith stories. Mm. I believe that they are there's a reason we've made so many Christ allegory jokes throughout this <laughs> throughout yep. this entire mini series. I think that's because these these are faith stories. These are stories about questioning reality, which is at the core of all religion. Wow. Um, most of these stories require a moment of intense faith from the protagonist, and many of them deal with the notion of a creator or a puppet master who's pulling the strings over the whole Fuck. thing. Fuck. The, yep. the lead character in most of these movies often only finds peace or strength once they embrace the idea of a higher power or a higher purpose in their lives. So I believe that we have been watching a science fiction genre cycle, but sneakily we've been becoming Christians over the course of this entire two months. (laughs) That is fucking... That's crazy. That's so spot on as well. What you're saying basically is... We have just been witness to the new gospel, and the new mm-hmm. gospel intersects in history with new metal at the same time, same place. <laughs> new so gospel, it's not just the new, new metal, gospel, baby. it's the noob gospel. <laughs> <laughs> it's, I feel that's what was going on. I feel like there was a real mm. rebirth at that time where 
faith and technology were intersecting and uh, yes. and artists decided to tell stories through both those mediums. I think there's such like a cultural shift at that time that people really were considering what existence was and it comes mm. out through art in this very specific way. And especially when you look at cinema as an art form, mm. cinema is Which the only do. art form. We do. Of course, in this podcast, we recognize film as art. Okay. Full we stop. We think it's awesome. We think it's awesome and we think it's art. Every single film ever made is art. From Spider-Man to Speed 2, every movie is fucking art. <laughs> from Homecoming to No Way Home. <laughs> They're all fucking art. Every single second of them is a brushstroke from Master. <laughs> <laughs> that film being like the populist art form, like mm. art for the masses. Mm. I think that it captured the imagination because these are like really daring films. People had the opportunity to make really daring. And what you said that really stuck with me is like rebellious films. Mm. And I think it was the first time since like the seventies with the sixties uh, and seventies, like the n European new wave and then the American new wave where we saw like daring, truly, truly daring films break out in what is the most mainstream way we've had mm. since then mm. and not since then. We haven't had anything like it since this millennium era where big mainstream films are connected on a really deep level with huge audiences for the most part. A lot of these movies fucking bombed that we are aware of that, <laughs> but connected with like bigger audiences in a way that we, I don't know if we'll ever truly see again. Yeah, I know what you mean. I mean, and some of these filmmakers have continued to connect in a big way and have mm. largely stayed true to their artistry. But for the most part, the ideas and the tropes and the, and the, the like stylistic aesthetic choices of this cycle have been pilfered and mm. stripped for parts by, like, Marvel and Disney and, um, yeah. you know, bigger, bigger blockbuster movies for kids and stuff like that. You know, if, yeah. when, you look at, when you look at the trailer for Doctor Strange, multi multiverse of multitudes of <laughs> mysteries of... <laughs> multitudes of mysteries multitudes of Multitudes of mysteries of multitudes. <laughs> it's, like, <laughs> it's like, oh, okay, this wouldn't exist without these, these movies, yeah. but it's now being used... To entertain younger people. Fuck, how psycho would it be if there was a Marvel movie that had the word multitude <laughs> in its fucking title? The multitudes of Venom. <laughs> Morbius multitudes. Know, we know what Morbius is like out on the streets, but wait till you get into his freaking head. The guy contains multitudes, okay? Multitudes of Morbius up there. <laughs> One other thing that I noticed a lot in the films that we discussed was, like, this sense of time, either, like, literal kind of time travelly things or temporal shifts and stuff Love or the way shit. that we even perceive times. Mm. I think like when you're leading up or you've just passed that 2000 millennium mark, I think you really are considering your place in history more than anywhere else. Yes. Like, you know, we uh, people do consider their place in history. When you've got like a milestone on a calendar that looks like that, where it yeah. ticks over- I think it's just something that's stuck in people's heads where they're like, oh, okay, I'm at the close of something or I'm at this, the dawn of something new. And you just really think about the present and how it relates to the past and the future when you're just like at a dateline like that. Yeah, it's so On true. a very literal level. I remember know? even thinking, and I would have been like 12 at the, at mm. the millennium. And I remember just still thinking like, oh, I can't believe I'm here for this. I can't believe mm. I get to see the date on the calendar go from one nine 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 to two zero zero zero. It's yeah. you did you did feel like you were there for something, like it was a historical moment. And maybe there's a close uh maybe there's something happening now. Maybe the reason that these multiverse stories are so popular now is because there's been so much chatter around like the last two or three years of existence of the fact that it doesn't feel real anymore. We're mm. living in this sort of bizarre limbo. So everyone is preferring artistically to dive into alternate realities and mm. multiple Spider-Mans and multiple multitudes of Morbius and stuff like yes, that. Yes, and the metaverse and all the multitudes of the metaverse. <laughs> so I feel like we're currently in a similar space to we were in the 2000s where people are realizing mm. that we're, in, we're currently in the history pages. Like we're going to be, yeah. we'll be... We're in the part where everyone will be talking about the plague, essentially. Yeah. 
we're going to be specifically named in the chapter where it talks about the shift to podcasts. Yes. As far as like people for work during the pandemic goes. Yeah, I really hope in the future when they talk about the podcast era, you and I at least get one name check in there. Yeah, they one name check, one mic check. That's all we yeah, demand. That's one what of we each. Want. Yeah, one of each. <laughs> Cam, were there any kind of rediscoveries or things you unearth, like with the actual movies that we discussed on the podcast? I think the one that I still can't believe how much I enjoyed again on the rewatch, especially because I was anticipating cringing my ass off the whole way through it and finding it unbearable, was uh, Mulholland Drive, David Lynch. Mm. That was yeah. a total rediscovery, uh, even just like from enjoying a film perspective for me. But also- And you're a Lynch guy. I would Lynch say you guy. are a Lynch guy. I'm a, definitely a Lynch guy. But you this- wear a freaking Lynch pin every day. Yes, yeah, a little yes. picture of his head on your collar. Yeah, we're called the Lynch mob. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no one really- no one, It's not really catching on. Um, and people don't like to say people it. People hate it, yeah. <laughs> like- it's quite scary. <laughs> but uh, but Mulholland Drive, I think you and I both had a good time discussing that one because mm. I think enough time had passed and we'd gotten old enough to be able to actually see it as a film that made sense for the first time mm. in my life. And that that was exciting to me to look at it and see the the like screenwriting mathematics of it all and just to kind of go, oh, look, it's not just obtuse art that you can't decipher it's very decipherable and that and by that by that regard all of this is decipherable it's all just choices that have been made by an artist to tell a story it's Mm. not it's not surrealism it's just storytelling it's so that was a nice moment for me to realize that i am looking at just a series of stories through this i'm not just looking at something that's crazy and weird that i can't understand and that kind yeah. of helped me moving forward with the miniseries, with all these other flicks that we discussed, Vanilla Sky, etc. Things that from a distance look like impenetrable, but if you mm. really sit with it, you can go, this is just a story about love and faith yeah. and um, ego. You know, like it's not, yes. it, I can't, that really helped unlock a few things for me. I think you're right. I think doing that one so early for us in the miniseries, helped me understand that these films themselves are often mysteries where you're the kind of detective that Mm. is just trying to find, like, what the message is here, whether it is through, like, finding the clear plot there or just unlocking the secrets of the movie. I think that what I'm saying is, for me, one of the biggest surprises was realizing that these are not just movies. These are fucking DVDs. These were all DVDs. And that these were all the movies that kicked off that DVD era, which is one of the most (laughs) profound eras since the Jurassic (laughs) period, DVD era. It lent to that rewatching and having home media be so accessible for the first time you know, VHS was pretty accessible, but DVDs, you could burn them, you could steal them, you could freaking fling them, you could buy them from the streets. And, like, having it be that accessible, but also not infinite. You had a few that you had to keep rewatching and rewatching mm-hmm. over and over again. Mm-hmm. That really helped me understand these as, like, the key gateway movies for people in cinema that are around our age, like the millennials and stuff, that these being freaking physical artifacts means so much to how this genre cycle and wave has kind of existed and penetrated the culture. And we love that penetration of the culture. (laughs) (laughs) We love to peg the culture. Finally, the culture is being pegged. (laughs) No, that's such a good point. And did it make you at any point... Uh, nostalgic or reminisce on the era when you only had a handful of DVDs instead of the 2000 that I can see behind you at Blu-ray Studios? No, not at all, because this is my video store. I live in the my favorite place in the world, which was working in a video store in around 2007, <laughs> 2008, which is kind of where we're looking at in this miniseries just a little bit after. So if anything, I feel nostalgic every freaking day of my life, unfortunately. I'm addicted to nostalgia. I will freaking admit it. And nostalgia takes form in its physical shape of uh, probably... 13 centimeter rectangular prism with a freaking flat circle on the inside. Do you think you would ever rent out the Blu rays behind you? I, I have, I, it could be kind of interesting to do that. 
Mm. Yeah. Make some cashiola off it. Five bucks a week. Yeah, I just look at it. I just I just see money sitting on the shelf behind you. That's all. Well, imagine if one day I just... I eventually convert my life into... I live in a little video store with a glass window. <laughs> I sleep behind the counter. People come in. They borrow. They freaking... I have a whole system. But that just becomes my life. That's quite possible, I'd say. Yeah, it's not... It's not a total mindfuck. That would probably happen. Like, there was a very famous video DVD store that just closed down here called Film Club. Mm. And I reckon if I was in a position like 10 years later down the line in my life, I would have just bought it and just continued it myself. Yes. Fuck, that would have been cool. Film Club was awesome. Yeah, I miss Film Club. Rest in peace. R.I.P.D., brother. R.I.P.D. Rest in peace, department. Fuck, we should have done that sh- for the Millennium Mindfuck. <laughs> Can you imagine, like, people questioning why they did RIPD? Like, I could kind of fit people trying to yeah. justify it's why we did it. It's about the afterlife. It's about what's real, what's not. Are ghosts real? Are ghouls real? I've never seen yeah. that. <laughs> and I never will, I promise you. I've nearly clicked on RIPD and Cowboys and Aliens so many times mm. when I'm just looking for something dumb to watch. But I've never. Man, even like three years it. ago, we said we'd do an episode of Cowboys and Aliens, and I've not even put the disc in my player i've not watched one second i've never clicked a thumbnail for it anyway look let's let's focus up here we're talking about millennium mindfuck for goodness sakes we there's a few flicks that we missed Mm. Over the course of this series. And we put it out to the listeners of the show, our Patreon subscribers over at patreon.com slash total reboot. And we got like the best list ever. If we were to continue this mini series until we freaking died, every one of these movies would have been covered. Yeah, that's true. In fact, maybe we could do a second uh, series of it some point down the line because some of these films are movies that I really wish we had covered and others mm. are some that I haven't seen but have been sitting in the um, in the same list as R.I.P.D. and uh, <laughs> Cowboys and Aliens for a long time. <laughs> um, yeah. Why don't we go through some of the ones that were suggested to us? Yeah, this mm. first batch. This is a batch of movies from a filmmaker that came up a lot and some of that we even did talk about on our Queen for a Dream podcast and... I'll tell you, this became mighty close. One of these films came mighty close to getting on the podcast, but for reasons of God's will, it didn't come to fruition. Mm. And this is a suggestion I found, lots of people suggesting it, but Xavier, Chloe, and Alistair Baldwin, our friend in Melbourne, um, all suggested the films of Satoshi Kon, uh, which are anime films from Japan by a fantastic filmmaker, one of my favorites, a big discovery for me over the last few years. Uh, films like Paprika, which is a big inspiration for Inception. Millennium Actress and Perfect Blue, which are big inspirations for everything Aronofsky's ever done. Mm. And he made this TV series that I really, really loved. It's like a 12-part uh, miniseries called Paranoia Agent. Mm. And it is the most Millennium mindfuck thing I've ever seen. I think you would really like it, Cameron. When I watched it, uh, Tom Walker and Demi Lardner recommended it to me. We watched the first few episodes together. And then I've seen it twice since then, the whole series. And it really, for me, was the first time where I was like, this is my Twin Peaks. Like, this Mm -hmm. is the thing that I get that surrealism, that full interpretation of something being so weird and so extended as a series where I'm, I just love, love, love it, love it so much. It's so strange and so weird. And I I would suggest that you could one day get into it. I think anime is a bit of a barrier for you. Mm-hmm. Already, animation is a barrier for you. Mm. I think anime is just that little step further for you, and that's maybe why we didn't put Satoshi Kon in there. Mm. Yeah, that's true. I find it difficult to watch an animated feature, uh, we've talked about that in the past. But the ones that we have pushed through with, I've enjoyed for the most part. Mm. And um, after watching, after we did the Requiem for a Dream episode and I read a little bit more about Perfect Blue and things like that, I um, I was pretty fascinated by the idea of this artist who has been kind of ripped off by Westerners for, you know, most of his career. And that, to me, I love I love. An mm. underdog. I love to support someone who's been ripped off by people like Darren Aronofsky. So, yeah, yeah I, I, I could see myself 
going the distance with like a paprika or a perfect blue for sure. Yeah. Mm. Oh, man. They're both really fucking wonderful. And I would say that one of the reasons we didn't get them in was they're a little bit hard to find. Paprika mm. is a pretty available here. And we I have imported all his other movies on Blu-ray, including Paranoia Agent. But they're just, like, not sitting anywhere to stream, and they're not even available physically in Australia. So, they're a little bit harder to track down. Uh, But Alistair wrote, like, a great little paragraph about why he thinks they should have been in there and why they connect to him. So, I'm going to read that. Um, I love Alistair, by the way. He's a great comedian in Melbourne. And this is what he said. I also just really equate discovering anime to that early internet mid-2000s era. I specifically remember torrenting a dodgy rip of Perfect Blue and the English <laughs> subtitle tracks separately, then having to stitch them together in, like, Winra. Bizarre but exciting era for Mindfuck Online. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck, that's so funny to, like, have to actually edit something together to watch it. That's great. That's that cinephile shit. That's the real shit. Shall we move on? Yeah, we got plenty of other uh, recommended movies here. Gattaca was recommended by Alex. Do you know, I've actually never seen Gattaca. I rewatched it just the other day just that- to check if it would fit. It's Andrew Nicole, right? Andrew Nicole, directorial debut, I believe. Maybe even screenwriting debut as well. Yeah, fuck, fuck we love Nicole. Uh, but it's Ethan Hawke, Jude Law, mm-hmm. Uma Thurman, and of course, one of my favorite actors, Gore Vidal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. I remember, I remember, I, I know the title, I know the imagery, I know the Ethan Hawke and the Uma Thurman of it mm. all, but I don't know too much about this flick. Is it, do you think it's worth uh, chucking on, even just for me to have a bit of fun with? I think so. I have never fully connected with it myself, but people mm. really love Gattaca and they really connect with it. I think for me, one of the reasons that we didn't put it through was I think that it has the philosophy down in there where it's talking about like the unworthiness. The whole premise is like people's genetics being created to be close to perfect and like weeding out all these genetic traits and stuff. And then not trusting people that are, you know, faith babies as they're called in the movie. Mm. So it's got that strong speculative fiction bent that I think is key to this mini series and key to this genre cycle. But it's not very innovative when it comes to its form. It's a very beautiful looking movie and it's got some amazing production design, beautiful cold blue cinematography, mm. fantastic performances from those lead three, and then across the board in the supporting cast as well. But I think it's just not as imaginative as I feel these Millennium Mindfuck movies should be. And maybe that's kind of where Andrew Nichol shined most is with The Truman Show, having the great bones yeah. for a speculative script and then having other artists come in and collaborate to make something really quite strange but very deeply emotional so you're telling me that simone was not the um zenith or nadir whichever one it is of um andrew nicole's artistic work it might be and i'll be honest with you i do prefer the goofy andrew nicole failures like simone and in time yeah more than gattaca Gattaca, I know, is a much better movie than those, but I'm endlessly entertained by Simone and, like, In Time. But Gattaca's good. I think I just don't connect with it, but I get why people love it. And I think that you might connect with it more than I do. I feel like it matches your aesthetic more than it does mine. Interesting. This next one was suggested by Monique, and that is um, Run, Lola, Run, which, again, another one I've never seen, another one that is always on the brink of being watched by me. My mm. wife loved this movie. Yeah, it's and a great movie. she suggests it a lot. She's always like, we should watch Run, Roll, Lola, Run. And then for some reason, it never it never happens. And I I mean, yeah. should I watch this fucking movie? I mean- Run, Lola, Run rocks. I rewatched it not that long ago, last year, this year. I think I've watched it twice recently. Um, I think it's a perfect choice because it's so DVD store era Mm. and it's one of those breakthrough, cut through foreign language films that really has a big impact on like cinephile culture early on. Mm. Um, I think it's great and so much so, one day down the line, I want to do a time loop miniseries and have Run Lola Run in there for sure. Yeah, all I really know about it is that it's it's set over a really short period of time, right? Like, is it almost in real time or something? Because- isn't it it's like- kind of 
almost an anthology movie of four short films that are all the same story, but then there's different choices that happen in each one to kind of get the perfect outcome. Okay, interesting, yeah. And another reason that I feel like I should watch it is it's like 80 minutes long or something. It's yeah. fucking short. I would say it's freaking 80 minutes short, dude. It's a ripper. <laughs> Fuck yes. Fuck <laughs> yes. I love that. The next one we have is mm. probably the most requested one. Yeah. And I think the one that kind of broke our hearts a little mm. bit to not include, yeah. which uh, Brenna, I saw, suggested it. Uh, is Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, Michelle Gondry, Charlie mm-hmm. Kaufman, and Jim Carrey, who most of those people and the key creatives in this movie were represented in this miniseries across a couple of different films. Yeah. But the main reason we didn't do it over even being John Malkovich mm. was it is not available right now. Yeah, it's bizarrely not streaming anywhere. Um, it's a great movie i haven't watched it in a long time but obviously this is one of the ones from this era when i was in Mm. high school that meant a lot to me like it did to a lot of people and um it fucked my mind but it also fucked Mm -hmm. my heart and i think there's a lot of dna in the movie eternal sunshine of the spotless mind that has carried forward with me into the films that i enjoy now as an adult and also the fucking um uh, stuff that I make in stand-up and the storytelling mm. stuff that I do. Like, uh, I love this I love this movie so much. I really wish we could have done it. I, I wish we did it more than being John Malkovich. Me too. Mm. I truly believe that, hand on heart. I think that this would have been... This is, is my favourite of those movies mm. since then. I've I, This was a, almost a late discovery for me. I think I only watched this properly for the first time in 2020. Um, but I think what is so important about this movie, why it catches on and why I think it's so important to this genre cycle especially is what you said. It's about the heart. This is so much what I talk about when I talk about the idea of American surrealism, where it's taking a concept or a feeling or an emotion, something Mm. that's abstract, like the feelings of a breakup and those feelings of loving someone and not Mm. being with them, like all those abstract feelings and then physicalizing them and making them into a cohesive idea that can be understood through surrealism to make something that's easily understandable and digestible. So you're watching like a plot about a breakup Mm. and those feelings, but has an exciting plot that's through like science fiction or speculative fiction. I think it is the best example of that alongside Pixar's Inside Out Mm. of taking something that's abstract and then bringing it into a physical form to communicate with an audience really effectively deeper emotions. I think that that is one of the best screenplays ever written. One of the best films of this era Mm. and maybe Jim Carrey's best performance. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I love his comedy performances so much. Um, He's... Mm. It's it's his, probably his best dramatic performance. It, it definitely is. It's definitely his best dramatic performance. But I oh, best performance overall probably the sketches from SNL Night at the Roxbury because he's not in the movie. Yes. but he really makes those sketches sing. He's really great in those sketches. And also, uh, what did I watch the other? I watched the Cable Guy <laughs> the other night. Oh, um, great movie! And I think that's an incredibly underrated flick, and he is so yeah. good in it. He's like great Super Bowl ad as well. A great, great Super, Super Bowl, Bowl ad, ad starring <laughs> Geraldine Viswanathan as well. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, he's he's very great. I wish we could have covered it, but you know what? This just means when it finally does stream somewhere that anyone can mm-hmm. watch it we can do this movie again in another miniseries so that's exciting. yes uh, maybe it's in our relationships miniseries mm. it can be a little bit distinct in there yes love that what else have we got here we got uh this was recommended by a few people ben vanell great comedian and christian also suggested this existence mm, from david cronenberg existence also never seen this one <laughs> <laughs> but also I have never come close to watching it. So I can't even say it's sitting on the shelf, you know. It's like it's never appealed to me. I I know a lot of cinephiles are Cronenberg people. I have never fully gone in on Cronenberg. I've I He scares lo- you. Uh he doesn't Yeah, he does a bit scare me. I don't love body horror. I love mm. um I liked Videodrome when we watched that a few yeah. years ago and 
I love a history of violence, and I love that little snub-nosed sawn-off shotgun in Eastern Promises. <laughs> yeah, I love that snub-nosed scene yeah. where Vigo whips that snub-nose out. <laughs> but the other stuff that, like, I know everyone this week has been sharing the trailer for the new Cronenberg movie, which looks like it's diving back into body horror. I can't, mm. I can't fully get on board with it. Existence is his slimiest movie since The Fly. It might be too... I think you'd be interested in it because it hits on some of those 13th floor Strange Days thing. Mm-hmm. I would say one of the reasons we didn't put it in is because it is quite similar to Strange Days, but Strange Days is a bit more of a discovery and a bit more exciting to go into. Um, Existence meets Strange Days with body horror, where it's like these gross connections going into people's head to go into like video gamey type worlds. Mm. Um, it's really cool and really weird. It's a fucking whack little slimer of a movie. Uh, I think that it would be one of the Cronenbergs that I would actually recommend to you. Mm-hmm. It might push your taboos, but you <laughs> might push back. Well, I liked... Uh, what's that? Other one? Did he do Naked Lunch? Yeah, he did Naked Lunch around the same time. Yeah, so I really liked Naked Lunch because I was a fan of... Because you're a big lunch fan. Bur- uh, fan of the meal <laughs> and also fan of William S. Burroughs. And you was- said lunch. I don't think you could ever improve it. <laughs> Hang on a second. <laughs> How about we take our freaking clothes off? I prefer How about Naked Lunch. a couple brunch? of snub nose to the party? <laughs> But, uh, yeah, I, I like that, even though that's pretty fucking sticky and icky and drippy. But, mm. uh, yeah, I don't know. I, maybe I'll go in on existence eventually. But, uh, fuck, man, I don't know. I prefer the I prefer the more reality-based ones, History of Violence, Eastern Promises. Mm. I like Cosmopolis as well. Yeah, Cosmopolis know. is cool. Yeah, I love cool. Cronenberg. He's one of my faves. Um, but, you know... It just didn't land for us. But if we ever do video games, who knows? It could come in. That's true. We've also got From Tyson. And this Mm. is one that we have considered from the very start of Mm -hmm. putting this video series together, Mm -hmm. which is a little Ashram Catcher movie Mm -hmm. called The Butterfly Effect. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And this is a true DVD picture, I'd say. Absolutely. Maybe it's too hard to watch because it's only on DVD, this movie. Um (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I was so close to putting it on the list because I think it would have been very funny to talk about like, Ethan Suplee for a while. Yeah, I watched this movie a lot when I was a teenager, and they made some sequels to it as well, I think. Uh, none of yeah, them, some none straight of them to Ashton. DVDs. But I, mm. I think this movie, when I think of this movie, I think I feel depressed. Mm. This movie does not make me happy. It does not spark joy. I hate the visual. I hate the visual aesthetic of it. Yeah. I hate um, Ashton Kutcher's like they've made him look emo and sad, and that's gross. Um, I hate that this movie has so many like icky little fucking gross moments, and I particularly hate the alternate ending of this movie that everyone seems yeah. to love on the internet for some fucking reason. It sucks. It's fucking horrible. <laughs> Everyone, even when I was a teenager, and it was just it just existed as a bonus feature where you could mm-hmm. watch the original ending as the director intended it. Um, I was still at that time like this is the most self obsessed, smug, and heinous piece of cinema that I've ever seen. <laughs> this makes me sick. For anyone who mm. hasn't seen it. We'll spoil it. Who gives a shit? Yeah. In the original... Because the movie's about a guy who's trapped in a weird time, temporal situation where he keeps Mm. jumping back and forth between time and accidentally changing things in his past and affecting his Yes, it's a butterfly effect. If a butterfly's wings could flap, it could change. It turned into a hurricane on the other side of the world or whatever the freaking saying is. And it's like, this movie already deals with disgusting themes. Like, pedophilia is a key a key plot point in this movie, like the, the molestation of um, him and his childhood sweetheart. So the whole movie is kind of gearing towards, he wants to undo that part of his life from ever happening. But the way that the alt- the original ending of this movie is that he travels back in time to when he was in the womb and he kills himself in the womb. And I, people love it. Yeah. People who are dumb... <laughs> <laughs> think it's cool they're like it's sick he kills himself in the womb i'm like are you kidding me that's the worst thing i've ever seen 
<laughs> I would also say that this movie is Donnie Darko light. It is Donnie okay? Darko light, for sure. Donnie Darko stylistically does the things that this movie hopes to do. Mm. And Donnie Darko is one of the... It's a primo movie. Mm. It's one of the most beautiful, sick-ass, hectic-ass movies ever made. Yep. And it is a king of the Millennium Mindfuck era. It is a prince of this freaking genre cycle. We've covered it before in our Screen Ages miniseries, so go back and listen to it. A lot of people did demand that we do another episode on Donnie Darko. <laughs> and I'll admit, I've seen Donnie Darko. No shit, Cameron. This is an honest confession to you right now. Mm. Six times since we did it on a miniseries last year. Great. I'm happy to hear that. That's, that doesn't freak me out. I love that. So, in my life, I've seen Donnie Darko maybe 11 times, and all of them, apart from one viewing, is in the last two years. <laughs> <laughs> it's great we love it we love it what else did we have recommended oh okay this one uh was recommended by a bunch of people i actually would have loved to have done this one sam jackson and georgia in particular uh pushed for oh, this by one. the way sam jackson that's two people not samuel yeah. L. jackson samuel L. jackson <laughs> is, is not in our uh patreon group you know, we wish. We wish. Yeah. So. Unfortunately, Dude, we don't. he's one bad mofo. I wish he was in our group. Yeah, I know. But we, he's not in it. He is not in it. Shea Wiggum is, though. But anyway. So. <laughs> yeah, but we uh, represent him. We're his agents. Sam, so. comma, Jackson, comma, Georgia all recommended the movie Primer, which I happily would have talked about because this movie was one of those... Mm. Uh, it, it sort of sits in the genre 2004 you know it's it's definitely I think it so is it's very it's mind so fuck. Is. it's also a very independent film which I like would mm-hmm. have been a nice change um, a true DVD discovery for most yes. people as well and, and I remember when I first discovered it I would like fucking proselytize about this film at, at uni I'd be telling everyone you gotta fucking watch it it was made for like 40 grand and it it's, does more than any of these big blockbusters have ever done um, but there are a number of reasons why we didn't just <laughs> actually the budget was $7,000. Anyway, there's Far a number crazy. of reasons we didn't touch it. And, um, the main Shane one Caruth is Shane Carruth. Yeah. Shane Carruth mm. is the, the main one. Yeah. Yeah. And that's all we need to say about that. I don't think I was ready to discuss this movie either. Cause I think I found it so confounding when I for- first saw it. I didn't even know if I would be ready to unlock it quite yet. Yeah. I've done a fair bit of chat about this with other film fans and i think it's easier to talk about than you think but Mm. yeah it's just very hard to talk about the the filmmaker at this point so yeah uh yeah i just didn't really i don't know (laughs) like i I would have preferred to have done looper or something like that yeah Well, maybe when we do time loops we'll get to some things that primer has inspired um Mm. but Primer is still an interesting movie. If you feel like you want to explore it, it's mm. up to you. It's out there. This one comes from Tristan, and this is something I have never heard of before, and it completely like awoke something new in me when I'm trying to track down some of these movies. But he talks about, uh, firstly, how much he enjoyed this miniseries, but it also reminded him of when SBS screened movies in the late 1990s made for this French-produced international series of films called 2000 As Seen By, All mm. Approaching the Millennium. And so there's films by Hal Hartley called The Book of Life, uh, where Martin Donovan plays Jesus coming to New York to start (laughs) the end of days. And this Canadian film that I've heard of called uh, Last Night by a filmmaker called Don McKellar, which is all about the last night on Earth from a darkly comic perspective, starring Sandra Oh, Sarah Polly, and the aforementioned David Cronenberg. So I think there were around 12, there were about 12 films all about an hour or so long produced in this series by quite like some well-known filmmakers, like obviously Hal Hartley's quite well Mm. known, but also Walter Salas did a movie called Midnight, but then also this Taiwanese filmmaker called Tsai Ming Lang who did a movie called The Hole. Um, They're all quite well-known international filmmakers. So it's something that I really want to dive into. I even found a copy of Last Night, the Don McKellar Canadian one, on eBay for like 20 bucks. And the cheapest one I could find was a Greek version of it that's got Greek like <laughs> subtitles. So I'm going to be checking that out fairly soon. Hopefully it arrives in the next six months or so. But that sounds so fascinating, so interesting. 
Yeah, that's that's cool. I like that. I like that. We got a bunch of questions from uh, the lovely people in our Patreon group here. This one came in from Christian. What about the great mind fuckers of the past? Where did the millennials come from and how did they come to fuck minds? Mm. Great question. Great, <laughs> great question. Great question, Christian. There's, uh, there's a lot of early stuff that comes from like, you know, 60s, 70s speculative science fiction, I think. Mm. Um, we discussed on the Patreon episode for the 13th floor, we discussed World mm. on a Wire. Uh, the German miniseries by Fassbinder. We also talked about that back on the Matrix episode as well. True, we did too. We've discussed it a couple of times. And uh, and the source material for that, which is Simulacron 3, which is a novel. I think that whole um, like 60s pulp science fiction writers, mm. they really kicked open the doors because a lot of their stuff was about weird realities or alternate realities or speculative stuff. Um, but filmmaking perspective, I mean, what did you? What do you think, Alexi? Who's who's been knocking down the doors for the millenniums to come in and fuck a few minds? I would definitely say David Cronenberg, who we've talked about a lot. I think the guy is literally fucking minds with st- stuff in the eighties, with uh, you know, of course, Videodrome, The Fly. Mm. I think those are like right in the millennium mind fuck pocket. Um, and the Millennium Mindfuck Pocket is actually something I'm trying to sell as uh, a bit of merch from this video series. <laughs> and no one's buying it. <laughs> no one. Well, hopefully a couple of little freaks out there will pick up one. Mm. Um, uh, Jodorowsky, mm-hmm. Alejandro Jodorowsky with like El Topo and uh, Holy Mountain. Mm-hmm. I think that's real abstract and surreal stuff. Uh, then you got kind of like more on that borderline of mainstream stuff like Ridley Scott and Man Who Fell to Earth. I oh, think yeah. even Last Temptation of Christ by Scorsese mm-hmm. um, and uh, Nikos Kazantzakis' book, I think is kind of in that millennium mindfuck or just real trippy surrealism meeting faith as well. Mm. Uh, but one key one who I think is a bit of the daddy of this shit would be Hitchcock himself. I think the he cock. is a proper mindfucker. He messed with the form so much, like mm. structurally, to make the audience feel things in a way that they hadn't felt before in a really big mainstream way. And then stuff like Vertigo, you see it inspire so much of the Millennium Mindfuck era, literally. But I think, like, you know, he is kind of the proto-Christopher Nolan mm. uh, in that he was able to do it in a very mainstream, palatable, populist way, uh, and almost secretly, I'd say. That's a great call. That's a great call. We love the cock on this podcast. We, you know, we worship it. Tom Cruise style. Magnolia, babe. <laughs> Which modern directors carry on the tradition of the Millennium Mindfuck? Uh, a lot of uh, a lot of our listeners suggested a few names here. I I would say uh, before we go into those that um, Christopher Nolan, even though he has become mm. beyond a blockbuster filmmaker, you know he's he is fucking his own. He's his own genre now. He's the franchise. He's the he's tentpole. the franchise tentpole. But I would say he still has stayed relatively true to his desire to fuck the mind. Mm. throughout he's never really stepped away from it i mean the batman yeah. movies probably they they're not really mind fucky but they do um but everything you know, that he did outside of it yeah. i think fits inception like, interstellar even dunkirk mm-hmm. plays with time in an interesting way you yep. know uh what was the last one what was the last one he did tenet tenet is i mean probably his ultimate mind fuck movie you know yeah um i i think he's stayed true to it and he kind of still carries the torch but in a huge big blockbuster way totally i agree with you 100 percent. we had some great suggestions from the listeners alex garland from ex mm. machina and annihilation i yep. think that's like that's a, a great spot call. on one great call uh, also denny villeneuve was suggested but i only think enemy is a really a trippy mindfuck movie the yeah. rest kind of play with things, but I don't think they feel... They, there's a certain quality where you just feel it being a mindfuck. Like yeah. Like it penetrates your brain in that way. I know what you mean. I think Alex Garland is incredibly spot on. Anytime I see... I mean, I just saw the trailer for that new one, Men. Mm. And you you do get that you get that excited feeling when you see, like, from the mind of Alex Garland. You're like, oh, <laughs> yeah. I know what I'm in for. This will be fun. Mm-hmm. 
Um, yeah, a lot of people... Uh, what were the other ones that were suggested? Uh, We've got Gaspar No, yeah. and I think Enter the Void was one that I, I feel so in the genre cycle of Millennium Mindfuck. I almost considered putting it in, to be honest, but it kind of fell just a little, like a tiny bit too late. Mm, yeah, that's true. I've also avoided watching Into the Void. <laughs> it's a full-on movie. I would say it's more full-on to watch than Requiem for a Dream in its style. Yeah, yeah. We've also got Julia Ducourneau, who did Titan and Raw. I like, I love, love, love Raw. Titan definitely feels like a Millennium Mindfuck movie. Mm-hmm. And then this is someone who predates Millennium Mindfuck, but I think that their films that happen post the 21st century, Holy Motors and Annette from Leos Carax, very much feel like the kind of surrealism that we see conjured up during the Millennium Mindfuck era. Absolutely. And then we got your boy Yorgos. That's who I think is the proper Millennium Mindfuck inheritor because Everything about his films are so, like, postmodern and new in that kind of Millennium Mindfuck way. Like, all his films are a trip. They play with the form in ways that are unexpected. And then Mm. he deals with philosophy, existence, and mythology in ways that I think are so akin to, like, what we've talked about with this miniseries entirely. I think that Dogtooth... Even when we we did ask our friend Maria Lewis if she wanted to be on this miniseries, and the two films that she suggested were Dogtooth, which blew my mind to think of as a Millennium Mindfuck. It happens a bit later for me, but I think like that Greek weird wave doesn't exist without Millennium Mindfuck movies questioning reality in that way. And she also suggested Under the Skin by Jonathan Glazer, which is even further, like 2012 or something. But I think those are true inheritors of, like, the weirdness of Millionaire Mindfuck playing at, like, an even stranger tone. Yeah, I... Oh, man, I would have loved to have done... I, maybe there's a way in future we can do some of of his... Of uh, the Yorgos flicks. I would love to... Mm. I would love to do some of those. I don't know yeah. how or where, but... If, we, if I love those movies, I get they're all movies that I've watched just once, and I yep. <laughs> haven't really gone back in on. But they've all been really cool and kind of profound for me. Yeah, Yorgos is a very important filmmaker for me. I would say mm. uh, Dogtooth, mm. Kinodondo. When I saw that, I was just graduating high school. And I'd been hearing about it like that whole year. I mm. got a copy sent to me from Greece, mm. and it. I don't think I've ever truly connected to a movie as deeply as that film where I I understood it on this like prime level on him kind of speaking to in that surrealist way. Like it's a really weird way to go around it. But Mm. that idea of feeling trapped by love and like that idea of there's this joke, this Greek joke that Greeks don't get married, they get worried. And that's something that I feel to my soul. And Dogtooth is like this horror film adaptation of that joke to me. (laughs) That's so good. Um, Under the Skin is one I've never seen, Jonathan Glazer. You'd love that, Cam. Yeah, it's it's been recommended to me a million times, and I, do, I don't. By ben Elwood. Ben Elwood loves it. He's obsessed <laughs> with it, but I, for some reason, it's never it's never really been at the top of my list of things I wanted to watch. But you know, I, I would I would like to check that one out. And uh, and Moon by Duncan Jones is another one. There was a time there where we we really all believed that Duncan Jones might be the next inheritor of this sort of. Yes. Filmmaking style. It's a a shame that it hasn't quite come to fruition. Mm, I haven't seen Mute, but I would say that kind of fits into this feeling as well. I haven't seen Mute Um, either. Yeah, and I don't know if I ever will see Mute, but it feels like that kind of movie. Moon certainly feels like a Millennium Mindfuck film. Mm. Warcraft, less so. I'd say Warcraft doesn't quite feel like a Millennium Mindcraft movie. (laughs) Source. What about Source Code? <laughs> source Code could, kind of. It's, it's a time, time loop, loop, loop isn't it? Thing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, maybe when we do our Time Loop miniseries, we get that. We do Butterfly Effect. We do Run, Lola, Run. Oh, my God. <laughs> but I think that's kind of it for Millennium Mindfuck. It's been so... I've had so much fun rediscovering these movies with you, Cam. Me too. And I, I will say uh, there's a series on Netflix, a, a second series is about to drop 
called Russian Doll, which I guess mm. sort of it's a time loop thing as well, but it sits within this style of of filmmaking. So the torch is being carried on. Filmmakers and creators are still fucking minds, and mm-hmm. we're here to absorb it and love every second of it. Yeah, and I hope more people do it. I think just even kind of reawakening this all 20 years later, mm-hmm. I think there's something in the zeitgeist about it. People looking back. I mean, we got a new Matrix movie at the end of last year, Matrix Resurrections. Mm-hmm. I think people, you know, culture moves in those waves and cycles. Every 20 years, we see things being repeated. And I think now that the 2000, the millennium era, feels like history, people are looking back to it. It feels defined now. So hopefully... We get a new, new wave of Millennium Mindfuck getting ready to penetrate the culture once more. Peg the culture, baby, but that's not next for us. What's next for us is a brand new miniseries based around Mm -hmm. a pretty specific genre, a style of film that is timeless and continues Mm -hmm. to this day and has been changed and shaped in many multiple ways. We've, I can hear the excitement in your voice I leading up to saying am, what it is. Can, can I say it? Am I allowed to say yes, it? Yes, this is you. I, this right. was something that you suggested when we first kicked off the miniseries idea, and we're finally doing it. Yeah, I'm pumped to do this. Our next miniseries is Heist Films. Yeah. <laughs> let it sink. Let it sink in, <laughs> yes. Cameron. You said it out loud. Heist movies. I've gone on record many times about how much I love a heist flick, how much I love a ragtag team getting together for one last job. Everyone's got a specific set of skills. You're mm-hmm. the safe cracker. You're the guy who can chat to girls good. You're, you have a distinctive uh, ability with acrobatics. You know, And you're double jointed and it's going to help us for some reason. Yeah, somehow that'll come into play in the third act. I'm mm-hmm. a sucker for the heist movie, but more than more than just being interested in watching a bunch of them, I would like to understand deeper why I love them, mm. and I would also like to deeper understand what they mean, because mm. they can they can have any thematic device thrown into them. They can be about a lot of things. Yeah. But what, why is it the perfect vehicle for a lot of, like, political thematics, you know? I just want to know what, what they are, what the point of them is. Yeah, so we're going to try and dig deep and kind of b- crack the safe on, mm. like, what is hidden in heist movies and why we think that they're cool, why they connect to us and why we get excited to them. Because I think there's something deeper that we are yet to discover with heist films. Um, we put together... An elite team of movies that we'll be going through in this mini series. Mm-hmm. We're still figuring them out, but firstly, we're going to kick things off with a revisit to a classic episode where we talked about the Ocean's Eleven trilogy from Steven Soderbergh and the original Frank Sinatra film. But our opening night film is something I'm very excited about. We've been talking about a lot of movies from the 90s, the 2000s, over the last couple of miniseries. But Mm. it's time we go back further in time. We're going to the American New Wave, the new Hollywood movement, with a film from Sidney Lumet, starring one of my favorite actors of all time, in what might be their greatest performance Dog Day Afternoon, starring, of course, Al Pacino and John Cazale and Chris Sarandon. Yes. I cannot wait to do this movie. I cannot wait. Yeah. It's always a joy watching this movie. I think it is one of... Like, a true crowd pleaser as well. Yeah. I showed this film to my partner a couple of years ago. Mm. They just went freaking crazy for it. Yeah, And I didn't anticipate it to, like, carry on so powerfully. Mm, Yeah, I did the exact same thing. It's a blast. Always a hit. If anyone hasn't watched Dog Day Afternoon and maybe you've been... You're aware of it and it's been sitting on the shelf along with R.I.P.D. and um, (laughs) Cowboys and Aliens for you... Grab it off the shelf, dust it off, and put it on. You are going to love it. And I would say to the listeners out there, we have maybe a couple of spots left in this mini-series as we're populating our team to crack mm-hmm. what is hidden behind the, ho- the what is hidden behind the heist movie. So, 
get to us soon. Hit us up on Twitter and Instagram at this is Lexi at I'm Cameron James at Total Reboot Pod or in our Facebook group if you're a Patreon supporter at patreon.com slash Total Reboot. Let us know what you think the essential heist movies are to make it into this miniseries. We've locked a few in place, some quite surprising. One that I would say is kind of a child of the miniseries that we've just discussed now. Um... So get in while you can, because we've only got a few limited spots in this mini-series. Sick. Uh, but until then, it's been so good diving into DVD culture with you, Cam, for the Millennium Mindfuck miniseries. Been so much fun. I've loved it. I'm sad to see it go. Hopefully we can do a I sequel or an inferior sequel series in the future or a, re- a reboot <laughs> A directed sequel. DVD yeah. sequel series yes. based on the Millennium Mindfuck yes. miniseries as Darko S style. Darko style, Butterfly Effect 2 style. So yeah, Cube that'll be 3, fun. Requiem style. <laughs> <laughs> that'll be fun. I'm looking forward to that. But until now, I'm absolutely pumped for heist movies. Me too. I hope we get away with it. Mm, me too. Um, as we already mentioned, our Patreon for five bucks a month, patreon.com slash total reboot, you get extra content, plus you get to chat with us pretty regularly and mm-hmm. recommend things and even influence the miniseries direction. Yes, there was some big influence on the miniseries direction. I think that every movie that we did in our bonus for extended season was something that a listener did suggest from being in the Patreon group. Absolutely. Um, In the meantime, uh, if you'd like to see me do stand-up, I'm currently touring around the nation of Australia. (laughs) This weekend, you're wrapping up your Melbourne International Comedy Festival run. That's right, uh, Melbourne Comedy Festival. And then after that, I'll be in Perth, Brisbane, Sydney, and Newcastle doing this show, Electric Dreams. I'd love it if you come along to that. I'll put a link in in the show notes, or it's on my Instagram. You can find it. I trust you. Mm-hmm. I trust you too. Mm-hmm. And until next time, enjoy movie. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>